The text for this morning's message is the Gospel of John, chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Lord Jesus, we come into this room with all kinds of things on our hearts, all kinds of things on our minds. We've had a variety of experiences this week, Lord, have a variety of things uh, facing us today and later this week a variety of feelings that we have in our hearts we don't even understand. They're just there, and there's nothing we can seem to do about it. But I pray that you would help us now, by your Holy Spirit, to turn our eyes upon you. I pray that we would focus not on ourselves or on our circumstances or on our surroundings, but I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would help us to stare you straight in the face and to look and to keep looking. I pray that as we turn our eyes upon you and look full in your wonderful, glorious face, that you would cause the things of this earth to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Come now, Jesus. Take us to that upper room and teach us, I pray. And I pray, Jesus, that as you instruct us in the way that you instructed the 11 disciples that night, oh, Father, I pray that you would shape our lives. I pray that you would change our outlook. I pray that you would change our circumstances. I pray that you would greatly increase our fruitfulness for the glory of your name and for the joy of our souls and for what you will do, Jesus, by faith, we give you our thanks. Amen. Last week we sat at the feet of Jesus and we listened to him as he extended peace to his disciples. He told them that in his physical absence he would not leave them alone but that he would give them his peace. And we learned some things about his peace. We learned that he gives an eternal peace and a holistic peace from an eternal source, not a temporal source, by his own authority, which is infinite authority, for the eternal glory of his name and for the eternal joy of everybody who receives it by faith. And having offered peace to his anxious disciples, Jesus then moved on to talk about living a fruitful life, or if I can put it another way, Jesus taught his disciples how to have purpose in life. He taught them how to make a lasting contribution in this life. He taught them how to gain a joy that will remain and will in fact endure forever. For them, this was very important, beloved, because it turns out that as much as they did have a kind of faith in Jesus, they were living for the wrong reasons. They were living for the wrong purpose. Their heart was to rule over the nation of Israel with Jesus as their king. And while not all of their motives were bad, while not all of their beliefs were actually wrong, they fundamentally misunderstood many things. And so they found themselves living day by day for the wrong reasons, beloved, for the, the wrong purpose. And this is in large part why they were so anxious that night. 
They had to be confronted through the words of Jesus with the fact that their eyes were on the wrong things and their hearts were headed in the wrong direction. The Lord had in so many ways to stand in front of that train and say, stop, you may go no farther. We're changing course, we're changing direction, and therefore they were very, very anxious. For us, this is an equally important subject because the world in which we live has taught us to live for certain things in certain ways, and while all those things are not completely evil, just like the disciples, they will lead us astray from the purposes of God. And when we're not living for the purposes of God, we will never know the peace of God. You cannot know God's peace if you do not live for God's purposes. You just cannot. And so it's very important that we sit at the feet of Christ once again and listen carefully to what he has to say. Let me just give you a few examples of the kind of purpose I think the world teaches us to live for. Some in our world find their purpose through the experience of pleasure. Many live by the creed that was first articulated by the prophet Isaiah and then repeated by the apostle Paul when he said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, there's nothing else really in life, so let's just experience all the physical pleasure we can for as much as we can, for as long as we can before we die, because that's really all there is in life, pleasure. So my purpose in life is to experience pleasure. Others believe much the same thing, but they work it out in a different way. Specifically, they're consumed with the desire to acquire money and things. I don't watch a whole lot of TV, but I must say that one of my favorite shows is that show Shark Tank. I just love listening to entrepreneurs and learning from their creativity and all that. But I also must say that I really grieve every time I hear one of the stars of that show, Kevin O'Leary, when he says that the only way to make money is to love money and to live for money. His point of view is that if there's anything in this world other than money, you will never make a ton of money. And, And that's very sad because money is a wonderful tool. But I'll tell you something, it is a horrible God, an absolutely horrible God. And sadly, so many in our culture are actually sinking their sense of of purpose through the acquisition of money and things. Others, while interested in pleasure and possessions, actually crave position. They love limelight. They want to be recognized, they want to be admired, they want to be praised, they want to be remembered after they die. They want to make a print that stays there after their life is over. They speak of their desire to help others and to serve others, but in truth, their heart is really very focused on themselves, on themselves. The truth of the matter is they built that hospital and put their name on the side of it because they were using others to exalt themselves and make a name for themselves, still others. Napoleon Bonaparte comes to mind. I was shocked when I heard a quote from him. I almost said when I heard him say this. I definitely did not hear Napoleon say that. You young people tell me how old I am these days. I'm not that old, though. But I did uh, watch a documentary, and I heard this quote from him that really blew my mind when he said, I'm really not interested in pleasures. I'm not interested in possessions. I want power. Give me power. I want all the power that I can muster. I want control. I want to dominate I want to be the one who decides what happens in other people's lives. In other words, they conquer in order to be worshipped. There's a lot of different varieties of all these things, beloved, but the world tends to seek its purpose through the acquisition of power, position, possessions, and pleasure. And sadly, I think even many Christians are uh, succumb to these things. Sadly, we live in the soup of this culture, and, and these things are in our hearts, As much as we don't want them to be there, as much as we don't want to even admit that it's there, they're there. 
Kind of reminds me when I go to India and there are many believers there that would tell you they've rejected the caste system, but when you look as an outsider at the way their churches are organized, the caste system is alive and well because it's a part of the cultural soup that they can't help but take in. And the same thing is true of us. I've had Indian friends who've come to America and they're just blown away by the materialism. They're blown away by the things in which we seek purpose. And I think, sadly, that Christians as well are are not immune to these things. On the one hand, we live in a world in which we're constantly bombarded by these kind of things. We're constantly told to live for these sorts of things. And on the other hand, the truth is that we're new creations in Christ, but we're still broken, aren't we? We're still sinful. We still have desires that are not in line with God's desires. And then when, uh, when we're, we seek to seek Jesus, we just can't help but sort of syncretizing and taking part of the things that he's saying and part of the things we've learned from our culture, part of the things that are in our hearts, and we come up with these amalgamums of purpose that are not really pleasing to God. And again, if we don't seek God's purposes in life, we cannot have peace in this life, period and end of story. Jesus was so wise to teach his disciples about these things in John 15, 1 to 17, and we will be wise to listen well to what he has to say. We're gonna be in John 15, 1 to 17 for three weeks, it looks like. This week, we're gonna look at verses one through six and sort of look at the foundational relationship that Jesus talks about there. Next week, Lord willing, we're gonna look at verses seven to 11 and talk about the way in which Jesus wants us to live our lives with God And then the following week, we'll look at verses 12 to 17 and look at the way in which Jesus wants us to live our lives with each other. And I wanna urge you to to listen carefully. He's not just trying to teach us new facts and new things. He's trying to shape in us a way of life that will absolutely change our lives. You wanna have a sense of purpose in your life? You wanna have a sense that you're making a contribution, that your life matters in a lasting way, in an eternal way? My counsel to you is to listen carefully to Jesus. Listen carefully, because he's here to teach us even as he was there to teach those 11 disciples. So if you look with me at John 15, one, Jesus begins with the statement about the Father and himself. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now when Jesus uses these words, I am, he's not using them in a general way. But for the seventh time, He is now invoking the sacred name of Yahweh, which is I am, which means to be, basically. And he's applying that name to himself. He's saying that I am that one. I am the one who revealed himself to Abraham and to Moses and to many others. I am him. And then Jesus is offering us some information about himself to help us understand who he is and how he operates. Seven times he's done this in the Gospel of John. And in this case, he compares himself to a vine that's rooted deeply in the soil and that sprouts its branches and that produces life-giving fruit for all who will eat it. And again, he's not merely making a statement about himself as a man. He's not making a a functional statement about, about his job description, if you will. He's trying to reveal something about his very being to us as the God man. He's teaching us something that, is, that was true about him and will be true about him forever and ever. And so with this picture of Jesus as a vine in mind, he then compares his father to a vine dresser who has ownership of and authority over the vine, who cares for the vine, who harvests the fruit of the vine and distributes that fruit to whoever he wishes 
for the glory of his great name. And since this metaphor of the vine dresser and the vine is actually about the relationship between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to ask the question, what is Jesus teaching us about their relationship? What is he saying about the ways in which the Father and the Son relate to one another? A couple things for you. First of all, Jesus is teaching us that God the Father is ultimate, that he is imminently great in power and that he has all power over God the Son and that he superintends the life, the growth, the spread, and the fruit of the Son. As God, Jesus Christ fully shares in all the attributes of God and he is co-equal with the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equally God. But as the God-man, Jesus is absolutely willingly and gladly submitted to his Father. Beloved, please don't miss this point. It's absolutely crucial to the way of life Jesus is commending to us here. As the Son of Man, he is absolutely, willingly, and gladly submitted to his Father. He is utterly vulnerable before his Father. He's humbly subject to every whim of the Father and surrendered to the perfect will of the Father. Even for Jesus, beloved, who is very God of very God. Life is all about God the Father. Life is primarily lived vertically for the Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing here is that Jesus is teaching us that he's not simply a vine of God the Father, but that he is the true vine of God the Father. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. What does it mean for him to call himself the true vine? Well, this theme of the vine, as it relates specifically to Jesus Christ, goes way back in the scripture. It actually begins in Genesis 49, 11, where Jacob prophesies over Judah, and then Jesus ended up coming out of the tribe of Judah. So the idea of a vine being connected to Jesus really begins there. But it comes into fuller fruition in in Psalm 80, And then in several of the prophets, the most important of which is the prophet Isaiah. So if you'll turn with me to Psalm 80, I just want to look back there with you at how God develops this theme and applies it to Jesus. And then we'll turn to Isaiah 5 in just a couple of minutes. In Psalm 80, which was written, by the way, by a man named Asaph, he was a priest in the house of Israel. He was a leading priest, had authority over literally millions of people. He is the one who wrote this psalm, and he begins by addressing the Lord as the shepherd of Israel. And I point that out simply because uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus has gladly identified him as the good shepherd. So there's already a link there. After this, Asaph pleads for the deliverance of his beloved nation. And then he compares Israel to a vine that was delivered from Egypt and planted in the land, which then took deep root and spread out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. So in other words, he's talking about the Exodus. he's, He's saying that God took this vine out of Egypt, miraculously delivered them, planted them in the promised land, and their influence had spread by this time so wide and so far that their power was felt from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River, which was a way of saying in that day that their influence was global. 
The, the piece of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Euphrates River in that time of history was probably one of the top three most important pieces of land in the entire world. If you controlled that piece of land, you controlled all the trade routes from Africa to Europe and, and to Asia. God had put that piece of land in his people's hands. Their influence was spread far and wide. And since this took place by the grace of God and by the power of God, Asaph then asked the Lord why he had broken down the walls that were protecting this vine so that this vine, these people, were being ravaged by every passerby. And remember, the trade routes went through here. Lots Lots of passersby. Lots of powerful people were passing by and they're ravaging Israel. And Asaph is saying, Lord, since you planted us in this place, why is this so? And he pled with the Lord. He pled with him in verse 15. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Now that is a significant statement there, this mention of the son, because that sets Asaph Asaph up to conclude the psalm by connecting the metaphor of the vine with this term son of man. It's a huge thing that's happening here, beloved. How many times have we seen in the Gospel of John where Jesus calls himself the son of man? This is a a major theme in the Old Testament. and Now the theme of the vine is being connected with this theme of the son of man. Asaph writes, verses 17 to 19. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. Where does Jesus sit? He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then when you do that, Lord, we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. In other words, we'll be faithful to you. We will not turn back from you. We will not cheat on you. We will not commit adultery by worshiping other gods. We will remain faithful to you when you have done this for us. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Let your face shine that we may be saved. I don't know what Asaph thought about this son of man. I don't know what God allowed him to see when he wrote this psalm. But I feel utterly confident that God saw Jesus when he caused Asaph to write these words. And what Asaph was praying for is that someday this man of God's right hand would rise up and deliver Israel so that Israel and whoever believes in Jesus Christ would be truly delivered forever and remain faithful to God forever and ever. Now drawing on this theme, the prophet Isaiah came about a hundred years later and also prophesied about this. Turn now to Isaiah chapter five. There's two places in Isaiah we're gonna look at, first chapter five and then chapter 32 but he begins in chapter five. Isaiah says in verse one, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. And he's talking about Israel. The Lord had planted this vineyard and he had provided for its protection. He had provided for its nourishment. But rather than bearing good fruit, you know what this vineyard did? It bore wild grapes. Now our yard, I don't know about your yard, our yard is filled with wild grapes and, and I'm sure the grapes are good but we hate these things. They wrap themselves around all kinds of stuff, they kill stuff. 
You know how I discovered, by the way, that we had wild grapes? I look out the window one day, Kim's got a vine wrapped around her shoulder and she's walking like this. I mean, all the way through our yard and she's going and going because this thing had wrapped itself clear up a pine tree. And that thing actually had the capacity to choke out and kill a pine tree. So you might think that wild grapes are no big deal. Wild grapes are deadly. They were supposed to be a fruitful vine for the glory of God. Instead, they bore wild grapes. And if we can talk about the, the reality of what was happening, that meant that they were committing idolatry. They were supposed to worship God alone. They were supposed to love him above all other gods. You know, when Solomon built that temple for the Lord his God, he did a good thing, but did, did you know that Solomon himself also built temples to other gods on the hills all around Jerusalem? Every wife he married, he came to worship a different god, and he built temple after temple after temple. The city of Jerusalem was literally surrounded by idolatrous temples. They had committed adultery with him. And because of that, they fell into immorality with one another. These are the wild grapes that Isaiah is talking about. In light of this very sad fact, the Lord promised them in verses three and four that he would remove their hedge, that he would remove their wall, that he would remove their protection, and that they would be devoured and trampled down. And then he concluded in verses six and seven, I will make it a waste. He's talking about his very vineyard. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but what did he find? Bloodshed. For righteousness, what did he find? An outcry. This bleak picture, beloved, is bleak indeed. And if the message was to stop there, I think I would feel as a Jew utterly hopeless. But please turn with me to Isaiah 32, because there Isaiah picks up this theme again of a vineyard. And he does speak frankly, but he also speaks a word of hope. So in Isaiah 32, beginning in verse 12, and going down to verse 18, Isaiah prophesies by the Holy Spirit. In fact, we learn in 1 Peter that he's prophesying by the very Spirit of Christ. He says this, Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields. In other words, mourn for what has happened in Israel. For the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars, yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For, for the palace is forsaken. The populous city is deserted. The hill and the watchtower become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys. A pasture of flocks. And now the hope. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. Now what did Jesus just promise his disciples, beloved? Do you remember? He told his disciples, in my absence, the spirit who has been with you will dwell in you forever. He's drawing upon the promise. And the wilderness becomes what? It becomes a fruitful field again. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. In other words, an exceedingly fruitful field. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness. And righteousness will abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness, quietness and trust. Quietness inside and faith toward God forever and ever. 
My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in resting places. Isn't it amazing that Isaiah spoke of vineyard and rebellion and peace, all things that Jesus has been talking about. In John 14 and 15, beloved, Jesus is teaching things that did not come out of nowhere. His mind was saturated with the word of God. And he knew very clearly what he had come to do and what he had come to fulfill. And so when we come to John 15, verse one, and we hear Jesus say, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Don't think this is coming out of left field. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. He's comparing himself to Israel. And we should hear him say that while their hearts were divided between the Lord and others, his heart is absolutely undivided before the Lord. We should hear him say that while their loyalty was fickle at best, his loyalty to the Father is absolute and will always be absolute. He is loyal to the Father and only to the Father. Everything else flows from that loyalty. We should hear him saying that while Israel did not remain true to the Lord their God, Jesus will remain true forever. He is the true vine. He is the one who will remain true forever. Jesus is what Israel failed to be, the true vine of God whose influence and life-giving fruit literally spread throughout the world, not only from the sea to the river, but now among all the nations. Jesus Christ is the true vine of God. And as such, again I say to you, he was absolutely and willingly and happily submitted to his Father. He was joyfully willing to do anything the Father asked him to do because there is love between him and the Father. There's trust between him and the Father. There's the joy of partnership between him and the Father. Submission was not an oppressive but, an, but a freeing word for the Lord Jesus. Submission did not cause him to melt down but to rise up. He was happily, absolutely, gladly submitted to his Father. And now that that is firmly established, the relationship between the Son and the Father, the identity of the Son as the true vine of the Father, Jesus goes on to talk about the branches. But it amazes me that as soon as he mentions the branches in verse two, he does not focus our attention on the branches or even on himself, but he focuses our attention on the Father. Look at verse two, John 15, two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So now we're focused on the Father as the vine dresser. We're, we're seeing now what does the Father do. We saw who the Father is, now what does the Father do? And it is interesting to me that he focuses on the branches and not the vine itself. The vine is in good standing with him. The vine is absolutely, ultimately, gladly submitted to him. No work to do with the vine itself. We're gonna focus on the branches. And the Father has two priorities. First of all, as the vine dresser, the Father's first priority is to remove branches that are not producing fruit because they serve no purpose at all and they take vital resources from branches that are producing fruit. If any of you are gardeners, you know this is gardening 101, isn't it? You cut away fruitless branches. Now we have to stop here and ask a question because Jesus says every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father cuts off. 
We have to ask a question, is Jesus teaching that a person can be in him, that a person can know him, and then lose their salvation, be ultimately cut off from him? My answer to that question is no, and I wanna take just a few minutes to explain why I say that. As was the case with Judas Iscariot, it is possible for a person to name the name of Jesus and seem to be rightly connected to Jesus, but all the while draw life from false vines. All the while be, to be connected to things that are not related to Jesus. For a season, people like this can fool others, they can even fool themselves, but they cannot fool God. When they fail to produce the fruit that proves their relationship with the vine, they are found out for what they are, and the Father cuts them off. I want to read for you some words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, like Judas Iscariot, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who is submitted to my Father in a way that I'm submitted to my Father, that's the one who knows me. On that day, many will say to me, not a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name, build big, great churches in your name, all kinds of ministries in your name? Didn't we do these things? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He wasn't saying that he didn't literally know who they were or where they came from or how many hairs were on their head. He was saying that they did things in his name but not in fellowship with him. They did things in his name but not at his command. To be rightly submitted to Jesus is to be submitted to God the Father along with Jesus. And to be submitted to God the Father is to love him and to do his will. And to do his will is to believe in the Son. And to believe in the Son is to bear the fruit of the vine. It is, please hear me, it is impossible to be rightly connected to Jesus and fail to bear the fruit of the vine. That is impossible. It is impossible to be rightly connected to Jesus and then fail to bear the fruit of the vine. It is not impossible to seem to be connected to Jesus, to be around him, to sort of be duct taped onto the vine but not actually connected to the vine. That was really stupid. I don't think anybody duct tapes a branch to a vine, but it's what came to mind. It is not possible to be falsely attached to the vine and bear the fruit of the vine. You have to be intimately connected to it to bear its fruit. So my answer is no. Jesus is not saying that people who are actually in him are cut away from him. He's saying that pretenders are found out and cut off. That's what he's saying. If he's not saying that people can lose their salvation, then what he must be saying is that when the time is right, the Father, although he's patient and kind and merciful, that the day will come when the Father will cut away all vestiges of hypocrisy from his vine. He will cut away all liars from his people. He will cut away all hypocrites from his people. And he will cause his people to be free from such things. And for those who have been hypocrites, the Father will greatly punish them for what they have done, which we'll talk about in a minute. The Father will not tolerate imposters forever. He simply will not. In his time, he will punish the wicked. In his time, he will cut off every fruitless branch and he will declare to them, in the hearing of all, I never knew you. 
You used my name, but you did not know me, and so depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Second thing that the Father does, as the vine dresser, he comes to the vine, he approaches the vine, he cuts away fruitless branches, then he sees the fruitful branches. What does a gardener do to fruitful branches? Jesus says that he prunes them back. He cuts things away from them, too. There's a play on words here in the Greek that is impossible to see in English. There's nothing any translator can do about it, but it's an important parallelism that I want to help you see here. When Jesus talks about the fruitful branches being cut off, he uses the word ire. They are ire. The, the, the fruitless branches are cut away, ire. The fruitful branches are cough, ire. Fruitless branches, ire. Fruitful branches, cough, ire. Fruitless branches are cut off. Fruitful branches are cleaned off. Both receive a cutting back from the Lord. For one, though, it is judgment. For the other one, it is grace. For one, it is punishment for wickedness. For the other one, it's a kindness to make them more fruitful. And exactly how does the Father prune the fruitful branches? What are his pruning shears? Well, Jesus doesn't say, but I think when we look at the rest of Scripture, we see that the Father uses a variety of things. Hebrews 12, he uses discipline of his children. And discipline has a a variety of manifestations. He uses all sorts of tests and trials. James 1, this is why James said, consider it joy when you face tests and trials. Let me ask you something. When hard times hit, is that the first thing you feel is joy? Jesus said, have joy. You know why? Because God's at work in your life. In one way, shape, or form, he's pruning you back so that you may be more fruitful. He uses suffering. He uses emotional suffering. He uses physical suffering. He uses uh, family and, and, and statewide and national suffering for his purposes in a variety of ways. He uses the word of God. I think there's probably been no pruning shear in my life that's been more powerful than the actual words of God exposing my heart, telling the truth about my heart and saying that's gotta go and that can stay. The Father loves, loves to use his word to prune his people, to shape his people. He uses the body of Christ. He uses other believers to say, brother or sister, I see this thing in you. I see this thing that has to be dealt with, or positively, I see this thing in you that's awesome, that's a blessing, that's fruitful. God, in his kindness, puts his spirit upon some to speak to others, and in this way, he prunes and prepares them for more and more fruitfulness. Beloved, the Father will use all kinds of things to prepare his own to bear more and more fruit. Such is the steadfast love of our God. He will go to any lengths to prepare us for the fullness that he has prepared for us, for the glory of his name and the joy of our souls. Until we are done breathing on this earth, we are not done bearing fruit. And this means that our lives are lives of pruning, beloved. Pruning is in your future if you're in Christ. The short-term fate of the fruitful is to be pruned by the Father in love. Now when you're pruned by your Father, it might not feel like love, but it is love. I remember once, Kim's the gardener in the family, I remember once watching her cut this branch back. I just thought she had just killed the plant. Like, what did you just do? This thing was like this, and now it's like, gone, what did you do? Well, she's like, just wait, and we shall see. I said, yes, ma'am. And wow, when the spring came, I couldn't believe what came out of that. She was very wise. 
when the Father is pruning you back to nothing, it may feel like something other than love, but it's not something other than love. He is so wise. He's a perfect gardener, and he knows how to prune us. This is our short-term fate. This is our life. We're going to be lovingly cared for by being pruned. The long-term fate of the fruitful, beloved, is that we're gonna be united with Jesus Christ who is divine forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. There was a joy being stored up for those who are in the vine that cannot be compared to any joy on this earth. No pleasure on this earth, no amount of possessions, no amount of position, no amount of power can be compared to the joy that is stored up for them who simply put their faith in Christ. To be united in Christ is the height of life, beloved. And this is our eternal reward. This is our eternal prize. And so then, with this in mind, Jesus spoke a very kind word to the disciples in verse three that I think extends to every true believer in the world and throughout time. He said to them, already you all are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now again, here's a place where translators have no hope really to help us see what's here in Greek. The New Living uh, Translation tried, but they kind of come up with an awkward translation. But here's the bottom line. The word for pruned and the word for clean are the same exact word in Greek. No deviation at all, it's the same word. When Jesus says you have been, you are already clean, he's saying to the disciples, you've already been pruned. He says to them, you have already been treated like the fruitful branch. Judas has been cut off. Where's Judas? He's not in the room. He's been cut off. But he says to the other 11, you have been pruned. You have been deemed a fruitful branch. You have been treated like one who has bearing fruit and who's gonna bear more and more fruit. Right now, I'm cutting away from you things that you were hoping in that were so important to you but that are outside of my purposes and you are anxious, you are hurting, you don't understand, you're upset with me right now but I'm lovingly pruning things away that are not of me so that what is of me can come to full fruition. You already have been pruned. And I think again, for everyone who has sincerely put their faith in Christ, Jesus would say the same thing to us. You already have been pruned. You're already being treated like a fruitful branch. And everything that's transpiring in your lives right now that feel hard, challenging, difficult, whatever, it's God's pruning shears preparing you for greater fruitfulness. Look to him, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. The things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You stare at him and maybe you will see his work. Maybe you will see his purposes. He is lovingly preparing you for greater and greater and greater fruitfulness. Now the reason Jesus could make such a confident declaration, if you look at verse three, he said that they're cleaned, they've been pruned already because of the word that he spoke to them, the word. When he says word here, he's talking about the totality of his teaching. Everything they heard Jesus teach and the call they heard him issue a lot of these guys were just fishermen. Jesus walks by and say, hey you, come and follow me. They heard his word, they believed in him, and they dropped everything to follow him. This is proof that they're, that they're true branches. Judas was a pretender. He was trying to use Jesus for his own purposes. The rest of these guys were not pretenders. They bore the initial fruit of the branches, the initial fruit of the vine. The initial fruit of the vine is belief and surrender. They believed in Christ, they literally surrendered their entire lives to Christ, and now they're sitting in a room and getting prepared to surrender their lives again. And I said to you a few weeks ago, 
They had on their mind becoming rulers over the nation of Israel, and before God, that was child's play. God had a place for those disciples that they could not imagine that is an eternal place. God had a role for those 11 men that is absolutely and utterly unique in the history of the world. He had great things, massively, eternally great things. But they were going to have to trust his pruning shears. They're going to have to trust that he's cutting them back by his words because he loves them. And if that's how they came to be in Christ through his words, that's how they're going to remain in Christ. So then he turns in verse 4 now to issue a command to them. He's drawn the picture, drawn it pretty powerfully. And now he issues this simple command, abide in me and I in you. The word here for abide means to remain in the same place for a period of time. So often, even in the Gospel of John, when it says that Jesus stayed somewhere for a few days, it uses this exact same word. He abided there, he remained there, he stayed there. The word is also used throughout the Bible and outside the Bible just to mean remaining loyal to a person. And obviously, that's what Jesus has in mind here. He is using it to say, remain loyal to me, and I will remain loyal to you. He is lovingly commanding his disciples to be undivided before him, even as he is undivided before the Father. He's saying, this is my relationship to the Father, now let this be your relationship to me. Abide in me and only in me, and I will abide in you. And while this command had particular strength and weightiness, that night, I want to help us see that it was not a new aspect of his teaching. Jesus had been saying this to his disciples for actually several years. Back in chapter 1, right after he had healed that crippled man, there was a bunch of unbelieving Jews with whom Jesus was interacting. And he told them that he knew that the Father's word was not abiding inside of them. And you know why? Because they were not believing in Jesus. In other words, what he was saying is that if the true seed of the word of God has been planted inside of a heart... That heart will believe in the one who is called the word of God. If you're abiding in the Father and his seed is abiding in you, you are going to believe in Jesus. And then a while later, after he fed thousands of people with only five loaves and two fish, he said to the crowds in the hearing of the disciples, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures. Same exact word, the food that remains, the food that abides to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, on the Son of Man, God the Father has set his seal. God has blessed this vine like no other vine. This is the true vine. And then Jesus instructed these same people and said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. In other words, whoever eats the food that remains forever, that person will abide in me and I will abide in him. Jesus had already taught his disciples that the way to abide in him is by eating the food that is him. It's him. And you can remember, these 11 disciples really struggled at this moment. They're like, Lord, what you're teaching is a little woohoo, a little crazy. Like the people are not taking this well. And the Lord's like, just said to them, well, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna leave me too? And Peter was the one that spoke up and said, Lord, where are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter, somehow, by the Spirit, was internalizing what Jesus was saying. We abide in Christ by eating the abiding food that is Christ. Still later, in chapter eight, Jesus said to some who believed in him, if you abide in my word, if you remain in my words, if you cling to my words, if you stay faithful to my words, then you are truly my disciples. The proof is in the fruit, right? 
And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Sadly, rather than hearing and heeding Jesus' words, they fell away. But with regard to himself, Jesus said to these same people, truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain. The slave does not abide in the house forever. The son, however, remains. The son abides. The son stays forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, If you cling to the one who abides in the house forever, you too will abide forever. Jesus had already taught his disciples this. Abide in me and I in you, and the way that you abide in me is by clinging to my person and clinging to my words. And then we recently saw in chapter 14 when Jesus asked his disciples, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, same word, The Father who remains in me, the Father who abides in me is doing his works. And then by Jesus' grace, he said to the disciples, when I leave, I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit to dwell with you. Same word, beloved, to abide with you. And Jesus said he's actually gonna be in you. He's gonna come and with the Father and the Son make his home inside of you. So, beloved, when Jesus commands his disciples in chapter 15, verse four, to abide in him, He's only commanding them to do what he had already commanded them to do. He's reminding them of a way of life that he's been teaching them. Even as right now, he's reminding us, don't check out and start thinking about the rest of your day. Listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's trying to get our attention. You know these things in your mind. Now let them be in your life. Abide in me and I in you. Remain in me forever by eating the food that lasts forever, which is me. And beloved, in commanding himself to do these things, Jesus is commanding his disciples to do what is absolutely best for them. In this case, his command was designed to teach them and to teach us how to bear much spiritual fruit that will last to eternal life. Look at the end of verse four. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless there is one thing. If it abides in the vine, then it's gonna bear fruit. So you Unless you abide in me, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. Here's the way to bear fruit. Abide in me. Beloved, you want to talk about having purpose in life? How about this? By abiding in Christ, you can bear fruit that lasts to eternal life. You want to make a mark that never goes away? Abide in Christ. You can bear the fruit of a growing communion with God. You can bear the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, the Spirit of sanctification, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. You can bear the fruit of genuine love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Just yesterday, somebody told me about something someone else in this body did for them. It just blew my mind. It's an absolutely selfless act of love that was a manifestation of the fruit of Christ in their life. You abide in him, this stuff's gonna happen to you. Unknown to others, maybe, not unknown to God. Abide in Christ and you will bear the fruit of loving those who are outside of Christ by preaching the gospel to them, by loving them, by caring for them. Why is it that Christians are the ones that are interested in getting into the prisons and giving those people hope? Why are we the ones that wanna go to places like Africa where malaria and other diseases are so rampant and we wanna give our lives, even take the disease into our own bodies so that they might know health? It's not because we're so amazing. It's because a truly amazing God is at work in us. 
and we see as he sees and we bear fruit as he bears fruit. You want to bear fruit to eternal life? Eat of Christ. Abide in Christ. Cling to him. Value him. Pursue him. Enjoy him. Be loyal to him. Serve him. Serve him. And then Jesus says, and of course, I will be with you too. I will abide in you too. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I'm only asking you to reflect back the light of love that I have already lavished upon you. It's amazing, beloved. It's absolutely amazing. The highest pleasure in the life of Jesus was submission to his Father. And through submission to the Father, the vine dresser, he bore an absolute massive amount of fruit in his life, and he's still bearing fruit beyond anything we can imagine. I am not exaggerating. When we see him face to face and he reveals what was done through him by his submission to the Father, it will take our breath away. There's a reason why people face plant in Jesus' presence and throw whatever crown they have at his feet. He is stunning, and the fruit he has borne will be stunning to us when we see it. And what he's saying is, come now, live the life that I live come and abide in me. It's the way I abide in my Father. You want to have purpose in life? Abide in me, and I will do things in you, some of which will be seen by others, some of which won't be seen by others, but the more you get to know me, the less that will matter to you. What will matter to you is that you're in me, and I'm in you, and you'll bear fruit, and you'll have a joy that cannot be taken away. And so, verse five, Jesus happily reiterated himself, not merely repeating, but reminding This is who I am, I am the vine, don't forget that. Don't forget that. There is no other true vine in this earth, beloved. And you yourself are not the vine. Jesus is the vine, you are this. You who believe in him are branches. I was about to say merely branches, but I think merely is the wrong word because being a branch is a pretty glorious thing. But you are branches. So he's encouraging us to get this right. He's encouraging us to get it straight. He's encouraging us to drill this into our minds and into our hearts. He wants us to understand his identity and our identity and how they relate so that we will, in fact, relate to him in a way that is pleasing to him. And what's at stake here, beloved, is huge. And so in verses five and six, he issues a positive promise and a negative promise, or you could say a warning. And let me just say a few words about these things and then we'll close. Jesus says in verse five, whoever abides in me and I in him. In other words, whoever hears my words and really hears what I'm saying, whoever walks with me, talks with me, and is loyal to me as I've been loyal to my Father, here's what's gonna happen to him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do no thing, not a single thing. Jesus makes explicit here, beloved, what was implicit in verse four, that his disciples, his desire for his disciples is that we would bear enormous amounts of fruit in this life. That's what he wants for us. If you've wondered in your heart, what does God want of my life? I can tell you right now on the basis of John 15 and not on my own authority, he wants you to bear enormous amounts of fruit. And I'm not talking about externally impressive things that will impress others, who cares about that? I'm saying that in you and through you, he will bear the fruit that he has already determined. That is his goal for you. And since he knows that The key to doing that is abiding in him. He is not afraid to repeat himself and then say in the strongest terms, without me, you can't do a single thing. 
Now, I started studying Greek in 1992. I was very intense about it. I remember going into the library in the fall of 1992, literally finding a corner in the library. I got on my knees and I begged God to help me because I told him, I want to handle your word carefully, Lord. I want to handle it rightly. I want to spend my life interpreting your word well, so help me, Father. I don't want to do this in my flesh. I want to do this in the spirit. And he did help me. And I have studied Greek for years and years and years. So when we come to this word for nothing in Greek, udais is the word, what it actually means is nothing. That's what it means. Without Christ, you can bear no thing. You can do all kinds of stuff. You can produce all kinds of products. You can accomplish things that are impressive to you and impressive to others but you can't bear a single piece of fruit that will last outside of Christ, not a single piece of fruit. He wants us to know this. You are wasting your life if you fail to abide in Christ. But he wants you to bear enormous fruit, so abide in him and he in you, and you will bear the fruit of the vine. Second thing, Jesus now warns those who will not listen in the strongest of terms, and I pray that we'll have ears to hear. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers. Those of you who are are gardeners especially, get that in your mind. Imagine the branches that you cut off and gather up and maybe you burn them, maybe you take them to the compost site, whatever you do, but just imagine that. He's saying that people who refuse to hear his word are like those branches. And those branches are gathered up, they are thrown into the fire, and they are burned. And while that may sound very harsh to us, The truth is that Jesus is simply saying that whoever rejects him rejects God the Father. And if you reject your very creator, what else is there in life for you? What remains for you if you reject him who has been so kind to you? If you abandon the hope that he holds out to you, then you have invited his judgment upon you and there is no other way. Friends, God is long-suffering. That means he's really patient. He's merciful, he's kind. The Bible says he's steadfast in love. He is not quick to cut off a branch that is broken and damaged. He's just not quick to do that. He's exceedingly patient. But the day does come where mercy and kindness gives way to wrath and he will cut off the fruitless branch. He will do that and he will throw it into the fire and burn it, which means he will judge and pour out his wrath upon that person forever. That is no joke. The author of Hebrews says that the person who cuts themselves off from the hope of God in Christ has nothing left except for a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume all of God's adversaries. That's all that's left for those who, who will not listen to Jesus. Jesus warned us in order to keep us from that fate. And you may think that's harsh, but it's actually loving. It's very loving for a parent to say to his children, if you act in this way, this is gonna be the consequence. So don't hear this so much as an insecure threat of a person who's trying to control you. Hear this as the words of a loving God who's trying to make you into a fruitful branch. Some of you right now are bearing wild grapes in your life. Jesus is talking to you, saying stop that. Turn around, repent, believe in me, abide in me, eat of me, eat my words, listen to my words, I will give you my spirit, I will give you my power, follow in my ways, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. That's what Jesus wants for us. The world says that the way to find purpose is to acquire power, position, possessions, and pleasures. But Jesus has a better way. Jesus says that purpose is found in his person. Purpose is found by aligning with the purposes of God. 
Purpose is found by believing in Jesus, by remaining loyal to Jesus, by bearing lasting fruit through communion with Jesus. Even as he is our peace, so he is our purpose. And so I pray that we'll hear his command. I commend to you, verse four, meditate on it. Ask Jesus for power to do it. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Father, I thank you for your kindness in speaking this word to us. I thank you for showing us something about yourself, that you are a vine dresser and that the Lord Jesus is the vine. I thank you for revealing to us the part that we play, either for better or worse, we're all branches of one sort or another. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the desire that's in your heart that we would be truly found in you and that we would bear much fruit through our communion with you. I thank you that that is your heart. I thank you that in a politically correct world, you're not afraid to tell the truth still. You're not afraid to look a person in the eye and say, these are the consequences of your rebellion. I thank you that you speak the truth in love. And I pray now, Father, that your word has been preached. I pray that it would have power in the lives of your people. I pray that we would hear, I pray that we would receive, and I pray that we would learn to abide in you both now and forevermore. And I thank you, Jesus. I thank you for what you will do through this word for the glory of your name. Amen.